Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Do you think bananas are healthy? Think again. I'm Dr. Stephen Gundry, best-selling author of the Plant Paradox series, and on the Dr. Gundry Podcast, you're going to learn the foods to eat and the ones to avoid, to lose weight, boost your energy, and feel your most vibrant, active self this year. You'll also learn simple tips from the world's top experts on health and nutrition. Plus, you'll discover the truth about calories, how running could actually be hurting your health, and why fat won't make you fat. Subscribe now to the Dr. Gundry Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because I'm Dr. Gundry, and I'm always looking out for you. Well, the folks at BiOptimizers have done it again. They've just released their new and improved formula for magnesium breakthrough, described as the most powerful magnesium supplement on the market today. The product was great, but BiOptimizers has continued to do research and making attempts at improving it. This new fourth-generation formula means magnesium breakthrough is now even more potent. If you've already taken magnesium breakthrough, you'll want to try the new formula because it now includes cofactors like B6 and manganese. If you've never tried Magnesium Breakthrough before, now is the perfect time to try. Here's a testimony from Dr. Mark Circus, who says there's going to be only one answer, and the answer is magnesium for many health problems. Well, he says that because of two important reasons. First, magnesium is involved in 80% of the body's metabolic reactions. And second, about 75% of people are not getting enough magnesium. And the problem is bigger than most people think. When you don't get enough magnesium, you may suffer from decreased sleep hygiene, low energy perhaps. In every bottle of Magnesium Breakthrough, you get the seven unique forms of organic full-spectrum magnesium, which hopefully will add and contribute to your health. It can help you sleep longer, deeper, better hygiene and sleep, hopefully contribute it to the all-day energy that helps you win at life. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by the improvements and how much more rested you feel if it's helping your sleep when you wake up, of course. For an exclusive offer for our listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. Use Dr. Drew 10 at checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. And one last thing, if you want to help your loved ones, consider giving them the gift of Magnesium Breakthrough for Mother's Day, Father's Day, or even the spring birthdays. Again, that special link is magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. Use Dr. Drew 10 during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah. Now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, Sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. We appreciate y'all being here. The Corolla Empire. Please join me over at DrDrew.tv. We're having some really interesting interviews over there live uh, most weekdays, 3 o'clock. Check it out at DrDrew.com or DrDrew.tv. And, of course, do support the people that support us here. We try to carefully select those folks. And... Um, yeah, now that's going to be part of your job, Gary. The the great uh, porcelain puncher is no longer going to be with us, and he's the one that normally vets stuff with me. Uh, and you're going to learn what a pain in the ass that is. So good luck with that, Gary. <laughs> Appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> and I noticed I got your first one yesterday. I thought, oh, I'm not used to this. This is very different. I thought, oh, shit, we're going to have to work this out. All right. So today uh, I'm delighted to welcome <clears> – <throat> excuse me. We're going to talk all things urological, something I've always threatened to do here uh, I'm going to do it also on my streaming show because there are more questions even more so over there. But uh, those of you that are fans of After Dark realize that After Dark is sort of the new – Dr. Drew After Dark is the new incarnation of Loveline. We get lots of questions. And that is not really a show for guests. So I want to bring my guests over here for the urological questions. My guest, of course, is Dr. Oh. Ashley Tapscott. Now, Dr. Tapscott and I are paid spokespersons for Petros Pharmaceuticals, and we share a common passion for sexual dysfunction and associated therapies. So uh, we will be focused on those things today, something I've been interested in since the days on Loveline. Dr. Tapscott is a uh, her website is shicarolina.com. Uh, her organization is Sexual Health Institute of the Carolinas. And uh, she is a board-certified urologist and also had fellowship training in male and female sexual dysfunction. We will get into all those things and more today. Dr. Tapscott, welcome. 
Thank you so much for having me. Like I said, it's a luxury to be here. You said luxury to me, and I said, stop, don't speak another word. We're going to have to deal with this on the air because I don't know what you mean by luxury. But then you went into something about Knoxville and East Tennessee, and I got even more interested. So what were you telling us? Yeah, so I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I i mean, I have to be honest. It's weird to have, I think, uh, you know, at 42 years old, a full circle moment in your life in terms of professionally and personally. So, you know, I watched you and Adam Carolla on Loveline. I'm with sorry. The true, and no, it was fantastic. <laughs> with the true, honestly, it was the true intimacy and kind of this living room conversation that was really ahead of its time. Obviously, yeah. it stood the test of the time and has exploded, right, with everything else we have in our our lives in, in 2022. But to think about watching you all talking about intimacy and relationships, yep. and then fast forward to today as a sexual medicine specialist and urologist, is, uh, is, and being here with you today is quite mind-blowing for me. Good for you. Well, I'm glad to have you, and thank you for doing the training, and thank you for noticing that we were we were trying to do something important. It really was, uh, people don't often know this history, my motivation back in 1983 when I first started doing radio was HIV, well, we didn't have the we didn't have the term HIV yet, and we were just calling we just started calling grids AIDS, and sure. and there, and I had this opportunity to go on radio, and no none of the young people had heard of it. I was shocked, and I was I was dealing back then much like COVID has preoccupied uh, physicians in training. Back then it was all H- it was all AIDS. We just did AIDS hand right. over fist all the time. No separate, yeah. <clears throat> oh, so much of it. And it was just hor- it was a hundred percent fatality rate at that point. One hundred percent. Nothing we could do except supportive care, which was useless. It was oh my God, it was so so tragic. But it was one Anthony Fauci back then who was telling us young folks, like, you got to get out there and educate. He kept saying there are going to be 2 million dead, 2 million dead. And we ended up with 175,000 deaths and, and considered that a triumph of that particular pandemic. But that was my motivation. And then it morphed into all these other things. And as my career went on, I got more involved in psychiatry and um, a lot of the stuff, as you know well, around mm-hmm. intimacy and relationships, of course, are, are – affected by these mental health issues and adverse childhood experiences, et cetera. But, but I want to focus a little bit on urology for, the, for a minute because, um, because I, I have to answer these questions uh, and, and I'm not at the level of training that you are. And so I want to hear your thoughts on it. Um, I'm, I'm not even sure where to start. I, let's start with this. Uh, I, I, I want to do a little female sexual dysfunction for a second. Sure. Uh, I saw, was it yesterday, some study or recently a study on antidepressants in perimenopausal mm-hmm. women. And when I saw the study, I thought, well, of course, uh, I, I can't, I've been screaming about this forever that we under treat, under acknowledge, under work up women uh, in their 30s and 40s for uh, affective disturbances associated with their hormonal environment. Give, give, give us a little primer on that from your perspective. Absolutely. And I, I think that is, let's shout that from the rooftop. So, you know, I, I've been, uh, you know, I always say it does me no good to give a guy a Ferrari if he doesn't have a garage to park it in, you know, in terms of a male and female. Gary, make note section. of that. Okay, yeah, and, got and heterosexual it. couples. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, when we talk about female sexual dysfunction, uh, I, I like to say that, you know, uh, I think colleagues like you and I, and then one of my mentors, Erwin Goldstein, who's kind of the godfather of female sexual dysfunction out in San Diego near your neck of the woods, um, where we have to have swag, right? We have to have a sideways, uh, uh, wild, uh, wild ass guess, right? Mm-hmm. Because there haven't been a lot uh, or any until 2015 uh, FDA approved treatments for women and female sexual dysfunction. Yep. And of course, you know, you know, guys are from Mars, women are from Venus, that whole adage that we've heard before. But certainly the brain chemistry, I mean, we had MRIs showing that the activation centers for orgasm, excitement, libido are very different in women with what we call hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which is an imbalance of dopamine and norepinephrine, and then maybe an excess of serotonin. So I think what you're referring to is some of this SSRIs that you're very familiar with in your psychiatry world uh, and the mental health world, which is that really increases the serotonin. But unfortunately, that is an inhibitory chemical for intimacy, libido, and sex drive. And... And you know, serotonin excess uh, generally works against uh, the sexual functioning. In fact, uh, I was on a campaign uh, in the mid '90s to go out and educate about that because the drug companies were denying 
that the SSRIs were causing sexual dysfunction. It's just that it, it's so dis, it's so overwhelmingly obvious. There was no denying it after a couple of years. Uh, but putting putting a middle aged woman on SSRIs very much misses the point. Sometimes they feel a little better, but it can screw up their relationships. It further suppresses their libido, and it just it just makes me crazy. Well, let, let me let, let me step aside from the inappropriate way we've been treating these things and ask this. This is a more controversial and more difficult topic. Should women be getting hormonal therapies? What about testosterone replacement? And if so, what kind? Absolutely. So I am a huge proponent of women appropriately being placed on Mm -hmm. off-label testosterone therapy. And sometimes what we've seen is combination testosterone and estrogen therapy Mm -hmm. may be more effective in some women who are perimenopausal or or postmenopausal and even premenopausal. I think one of the things that I've learned, so I'm a, an avid member of the Sexual Medicine Society of North America and then ISHWISH, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And ISHWISH actually has guidelines now for practitioners, whether they're gynecologists, family medicine, internal medicine, uh, and urologists in terms of off-label testosterone therapy for women. And I think that it's incredibly important when you look at those numbers. You know, one thing we don't talk about Uh, except for in these sexual medicine societies, is when women take birth control pills. And I know in the 70s, uh, with a lot of perhaps, if you want to call it promiscuous activity, free love, whatever people wanted to call it, uh, there was a lot of concern for pelvic inflammatory disease. So women weren't having IUDs placed. They were placed on birth control, oral contraceptive pills. When you're placed on oral contraceptive pills, there is a protein and a hormone called SHBG. You're very aware of it, sex hormone binding globulin. Mm-hmm. That has increased exponentially on oral birth control pills, and that steals all of women's free testosterone. Mm-hmm. Even if you stop oral contraceptives, that SHBG never goes down to a level where it would have been if you weren't on, uh, weren't on oral contraceptives. And so these women are chronically low on testosterone, which can have the same effects as it has on men in terms of memory, mood, concentration, fatigue, Muscle mass, sex drive, uh, and in men specifically bone health, we know uh, women, of course, estrogen is the more moderator of that. So I treat women uh, very, very fluidly and very responsibly, I believe, in my practice with these guidelines with off-label testosterone therapy. My wife is the spokesperson for this. I mean, she was – so so her story is she was uh, ovarian hyperstimulation for a fertility campaign, then has a triplet. Yeah, you have triplets, right? Yeah, then had a triplet pregnancy yeah. and then was shut down and had some various kinds of uh, menstrual irregularities afterwards, but sort of restored normal cycling. And people just went, well, they didn't even think about her, her hormonal status, even though it didn't take much imagination to think that it might mm-hmm. not be normal after all that, uh, number one. Number two, her mom entered menopause at like age 40. Uh, so there was that genetic background. And then for like 20 years, she was not feeling right and was intermittently on antidepressants uh, with, and being told constantly that she needed to see a therapist and she needed an antidepressant and blah, blah. And then lo and behold, around 50 gets on proper replacement, completely restored, no mood disturbances, furious, furious at everybody else and had this feeling that a part of herself had been restored that she had lost and mm-hmm. helped our relationship a ton, and she was completely back. And so, she, and and now when she uh, goes into lower uh, hormonal states, she doesn't. She recognizes that feeling. It's a fatigue. Doesn't feel it's, well. Yeah, it doesn't feel yeah. well exactly. And so, yeah, and I hear this a lot. Like I, I don't, I don't. Some some men on that are low hypogonadal or yeah. low testosterone, as we call it, say, you know, I don't feel bad, but I don't feel like myself. And I think women, it's a much bigger swing. Um, and I think it's just because of a few other hormones involved as well. Well, there's a complete like men, shutdown. There's a complete yeah. shutdown of their main source it of is. testosterone. Yeah. Men, men have it just is. sort of a waning, <laughs> sad waning of, 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 our, of our testosterone. And, and well, again, like we call it oh. manopause, right? It was yeah, the yeah. cover of time in 2012 where all the yeah. testosterone got blamed for a multi-billion dollar industry unnecessarily. And we have the scientific facts from a cardiovascular and a, and a bone health perspective that really, in a vitality perspective, that really back up the urologic data. You, you mentioned Ishwish. We interviewed a couple times. Uh, Dr. Goldstein, Gary, was that his name? Erwin Goldstein. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's the, go- the goat of FSD. Yeah. yeah, and he had a whole theory about uh, estrogen binding sites and the, mm-hmm. a, a long receptor and a short receptor and how some women on these birth control pills who develop uh, hypoactive sexual desire will have it permanently. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, and that's what you were talking about in terms of the the uh, av- available circulating hormones as well. Well, let, let's let's switch over to the penis for a second. Let's go let's go that direction. And, let's do it. And and men have all kinds of odd concerns about it. Um, yes. let, let's go to the exotica first. Um, oh. 
I, I was reading something the other day about um, priapism and the treatments, yes. and I was surprised to, to see how frequently uh, urologists were using catheters and surgical interventions and stuff. Is that <laughs> is that really that common? Or can you just wait Absolutely. it out and tell people what yeah, it is and so, where it happens? So, Yeah, so a couple things about priapism. So medically, the definition of priapism, which is an erection that lasts longer than four hours. And a lot of people would joke and say, well, if I have an erection that lasts, like, lasts longer than four hours, I'm calling like my girlfriend, my ex-girlfriend, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. newspaper, et cetera. But really what happens is, is once that shunt, if we call it a shunt medically, or the influx of, of, of blood flow in overwhelms the penile outflow, the penis is basically holding its breath at that point. So then cell and tissues may start to die after a period of four hours. So obviously you can have some permanent erectile dysfunction after that. One of the greatest, uh, the world's experts is at John Hopkins, uh, Arthur Bud Burnett, uh, the head of the department there in terms of sexual health. Uh, has really done a lot of research in this. And so unfortunately, sometimes we may be able to reduce that uh, priapism with a chemical that is phenylephrine, dilute phenylephrine that that reverses that flow. But also we may have to actually create a physical shunt where we basically kind of drain the penis. And I'll spare you guys the diagrams unless you want to see them next podcast. But certainly we have to kind of create an outflow because that blood flow is deoxygenated. It is not oxygenated blood flow. It gets trapped in the penis. And these men can result in permanent erectile dysfunction. This happens sometimes with combination of medications like uh, the oral medications with cocaine, perhaps substance abuse users, um, also gas station supplements, which I have no idea what's in half of them. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing, too, can happen is, like I said, the intracavernosal injections, which can come from, you know, board certified urology clinics or some of these, quote, men's clinics um, that are out there. You're talking about the prostaglandin in- injections? Or, yeah. Yes, there's actually a, yes, sir. Yeah. There's actually a couple different types. So, so prostaglandin E1. Caverject. Yeah, so Caverject and Edex are the yeah. two brands yeah. that are alprostagl. But then there's everything else is compounded. So there's Bimix, which I is papaverin and prostaglandin, and then Trimix, which is papaverin, prostaglandin, uh, and then phentolamine. See, I didn't know they're using papaverin anymore. And when you say the phenylephrine, is that intrapenile injection or is that a systemic injection? No, it's intracavernosal. In, into the and, and so again, it's just, so we're using anatomical terms here. So do, inside, yeah, into describe, the describe describe what erection is for people because they really Absolutely. don't understand. They think there's a bone or there's something breaks. And okay, well, yeah. what is a penis? What how does a penis yeah. work? Gary's sure. laughing, so but do you do you have do you have questions, Gary? Come on, I'm, I'm sure I do have <laughs> questions. I'm laughing because of your dick. It's a bone. <laughs> I know it's so crazy <laughs> things people like say. That. And the other thing, by the way, we got to get to it too. How how semen works because people get very confused about the. What's yes, in there, where it comes from. Yeah. Ejaculation, orgasm, yeah. how that is. And again, my nurse's biggest phrase about me is like, she's a surgeon, not a therapist. <laughs> um, so, you know, we'll make sure we get, get this in top of it. But in terms of penile tissue, so yeah. the corpora cavernosa are two basic rocket boosters, okay, that are in the penis. Sponges. That in the back of your, yeah, sort sponges. of sponges, yeah. It's spongy tissue like your kitchen sink sponge, right? And it goes from the back of your pelvic bone all the way until kind of the middle tip of your penis. So the glands, we call it anatomically, or the head of the penis or corona, uh, is basically like a gumdrop on pretzel rods, okay? So your erectile tissue is the two pretzel rods. And then that glands, which is very sensitive, is a different kind of tissue, but it's still spongy and brings a lot of blood flow in. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, is I call myself kind of a fancy plumber, right? I'm a human plumber. So blood flow goes into the erections when you're stimulated. Okay. It does. And with these oral medications, you have to have stimulation. You can't sit on the couch, you know, naked eating Cheetos. Okay. Unless, unless you have some stimulation, unless that's your thing. Okay. So the arteries open. Blood goes into the penis, and then it requires also these valves to close shut to trap blood in the penis. So erectile dysfunction is either a filling problem or a storage problem or a little bit of both. So you either can't get blood in, can't keep blood in, the mix, or as you're aware in mental health, about 10% is psychogenic. Mm. And it's you said the increase, isn't it primarily sort of the uncoiling of the arterioles? Isn't, isn't that sort of how it works? Yeah, so, they so kind we, of uncoil. They also dilate and, dilate and expand. Yeah. So nitric <laughs> oxide is the mediator, the nitric oxide released by the nerves. So here's the thing about the that um, those nerves. So those nerves run along the base of the prostate and come into the into the penis, right? And yeah. I've had I've had a prostatectomy, and so yes, that's sir. that's the dreaded complication of uh, prostate surgery is that those nerves get stretched, and in the in the time of <clears throat> robotic radical prostatectomies, 
Do you do that, by the way? Is that a procedure you do? So I gave that. So it's funny. Real quick story. I actually wanted to be a big, bad mamma jamma robotic prostate cancer surgeon. But three years into my training, I realized there were like 100 guys taking out prostates. And like one guy where I was training in Philadelphia, fixing erections and incontinence. And I thought, why would I take a guy in the prime of his life and not restore him to be intimate with his partner? And he wears a pad when he throws a fishing pole or is on the golf course, right? That's not okay. Like, congrats, sir. You beat cancer, but you're going to pee on yourself and you can't have sex with your wife. So I actually kind of pivoted and then went to sexual medicine from there. Interesting. So I've had no – in fact, only – if anything, positive effects from from prostate surgery. So I no great. no complaint. Yeah, more control. It's a, it's a <laughs> well, it's more control. It's very strange. I just like how uh, you're but trying you know to do what? it medically. Say, but Dr. Drew, your preoperative health and dedication to you know your your health probably helped dictate that response as well. Possibly that's true. Uh, and, and but but it it. Uh, for people that don't understand this, so the prostate is produces the semen, and so when you take your prostate out, there's no more semen production, but nothing else is altered. Nothing else need be altered, which is really kind of fascinating. Yeah. But but uh, let's do two seconds on semen production and and where the sperm fits in and how the whole ejaculatory process works. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is something that I have to really educate my patients on daily because I think people think ejaculation and orgasm, while they may occur simultaneously, are the same response. So yeah. I've got a lot of guys come to me and say, I can't come yeah. or squirt or, you know, right. what I said, wait, let's let's back up. Are you talking about reaching the height of sensation or are you talking about squirting fluid out? Yeah. Most of my population, if you're not trying to get anyone pregnant, the ejaculation, we really need to have an honest conversation about, right? Because honestly, a lot of my patients' partners aren't really interested in, quote, the mess, right, what? if they want to talk about it. Yeah. Some people are, okay? Yeah, yeah. I know you're from Loveline, so uh, your background's yeah. different, yeah, right? Yeah. But some people are. But certainly yeah. the prostate makes the ejaculatory fluid. Yeah. So when we remove the prostate, men post-prostatectomy, then that's removal for cancer, not just enlarged prostate, okay, where we do terps or rotorooters, whatever they call it do not usually make any ejaculation. So it's a dry ejaculate, but they still should have great orgasms. There's no reason for them not to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we talk about semen production, that's actually, you know, the sperm, which is part of semen mixed with ejaculate, is from the testicles. So men that have had a vasectomy, they just don't have the plumbing to get the, the sperm outside of the body. They should still have normal volume of ejaculate. So so volume of ejaculate is a weird preoccupation of young oh, men. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And, and how can I make that more? So... I, I always – and they – okay, so they get very confused about semen and, and sperm. So sperm is sort of dripped in, right? The, the, the actual source of fertility is, is not something that's released so much during ejaculation. Yeah, yeah it's sort of dripped Correct. in. Correct. And is it – it's mixed in the seminal vesicles primarily? Is that when the, where Correct. they're mixed? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so I say they're, they're produced – the sperm are produced in the testicle. They go to the epididymis, which is like you know middle school. They yeah. go to the seminal vesicle, which is like high – school where they get a little more mature and then they come out with the this the ejaculation from the prostate that carries them out of the body and and is is the semen that's that's a uh produced by the prostate is some of that or most most of that even accumulated in the seminal vesicles prior to ejaculate yeah, yeah. some of that and then, and then again you know ejaculation is frustrating it can be a hydration issue mm-hmm. you know if you're a diabetic you may have some calcification of the seminal vesicles which can also influence that in fact mm-hmm. we see that on x-rays sometimes oh, interesting. oddly enough mm. Mm-hmm. So, and so that affects sort of uh, the ability to what expand and hold fluid and the ability to release fluid, I imagine, right? Exactly. And then you talk about pelvic weakness. If we have obesity, mm-hmm. um, if we have other factors where you've had pelvic injury or trauma, the bulbospongiosis muscle, which is on either side of the penile of uh, corporal tissue, squeezes to help release that ejaculatory fluid. So, like the force or the flow may be affected as well. I get a lot of questions about retrograde ejaculation, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and so talk about that for a second. I, to me, I always tell them sort of don't worry about it unless you're worried about fertility. Then it could become yep. challenging. So you give me yeah. your spiel. Yeah, and that, yeah, that's a hard topic, and, and I have a lot of men that are frustrated with that. So retrograde ejaculation, in my experience, usually comes from two sources. Number one. They're on a medication mm-hmm. where the prostate or the area around the ejaculatory duct is relaxed. So the, yeah. the, the ejaculatory fluid kind of comes back into the bladder. Mm-hmm. That seems like a really scary concept to some people, but it just mixes with urine and you never even know it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that those would be things like Tamsulosin, 
you know, any of the medications for enlarged prostate, including some of the erectile medications like Tadalafil, because they do relax the prostate in the bladder neck, allowing that ejaculatory fluid to kind of come backwards. The other reason is post-surgical. Oftentimes, if you've had radiation to the pelvis, colon cancer surgery, or what we call a TERP, a transurethral resection of the prostate, or kind of the rotor rooter, as the guys called it in the 70s and 80s, where we've cored out the prostate to let allow you to urinate easier the base of the ejaculatory duct is right there at the prostate. And so that's why they may have retrograde ejaculation. There's actually only one therapy for enlarged prostate at this time that, that is proven uh, to sustain sexual function. And that is uh, the Urolift implant. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and a lot, <clears throat> I've noticed a lot of males get into weird um, rituals around holding back ejaculates. And I think some of them sort of entrain retrograde ejaculation. Is that what's happening? Agree. I think I think that we really don't talk enough about the like the partner partner climax mismatch, um, which actually is a huge advantage in, in my men who I place penile implants in because they can obviously stay erect, still have a climax. And then, you know, so if there's a climax mismatch, I think really it comes down to communication, which is what you, you know, hit on way back, you know, in the 80s and in the 90s when you started kind of your discussions. I think partners really sometimes aren't honest with themselves about communication, about you know, where the orgasm is, where it is for them in their, in their journey. We've got a lot of women that have dryness, discomfort, and local atrophy, a lot of different things. I mean, look, scheduled sex is not sexy, which is why infertility is so hard. And so, you know, you want to take a pill, synchronize your watches, make sure he or she is lubricated or there or whatever. And it's just, it becomes such an arduous task that produces a lot of anxiety. And then when you have that fight or flight hormone, it's impossible to get an erection, right? Yeah. We were designed to run from the dinosaurs and you can't run from them when you have an erection because it's a sympathetic and parasympathetic mismatch. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's, you're right on the orgasm function, but, but I, they, they do a lot of this holding and twisting and all kinds of weird stuff uh, yeah. around, around masturbation really. And, yeah. and then they, then suddenly they get a retrograde ejaculation and it freaks them out. A, should they be worried? Have they done something at that point? Are they are they in training retrograde ejaculation in the sense that when they do want to uh, ha have children, it becomes an issue? Or is it just don't worry about it? I wouldn't worry about it. Certainly if you see blood in mm. your urine or mm. blood in your ejaculate, uh, hematospermia or blood in the ejaculate is usually a benign cause. Yeah. But certainly that's a reason to, to seek out a urologist just to make sure there's not any structural or functional Got concerns. It. And then a, a lot of questions I get around uh, pelvic floor pain, <clears throat> mostly in men. And it, it always has kind of gone off as pubococcygeous spasm. But is, is, that, is that just too just so? Is it more complicated than that? Because sometimes I think it is sort of uh, related to pelvic urethra or prostatic urethra and something is irritated in there triggering the spasming. You tell me. Absolutely. I, I agree 1000%. So I will tell you, there are a lot of things that I do pretty well, but the one magician, you know, arm of my practice is my pelvic floor physical therapist. Mm. They do things and can examine things and approach things in a manner that just continues to blow me away. I have a couple here in my local area regionally in Charlotte, um, but certainly there are national organizations of these people and they are dedicated, passionate uh, proponents of pelvic floor physical therapy and look, or testicular pain, chronic scrotal pain, there could be so many variables mm. and, and a lot of people don't like to treat it because it is frustrating and it does take some time and some effort and they may be on multiple modalities. So I completely agree with you. There are many mechanisms for that pain. And I would like to say there is a lot of high tone pelvic floor dysfunction that is misdiagnosed in mm. men. And I think the difference is, you know, if we just talk about men and women in just the biological sense, women have vaginal canals where they're placing tampons, they're having intercourse, there are a lot of, they're having babies, there are things that kind of stretch those muscles. That's not necessarily the case in men. Uh, and so I see a lot of pel pelvic pain in my practice. And in women, we call it vaginismus, and <clears throat> it gets identified pretty easily because it's affecting other kinds of interpersonal functioning. But in men, it just gets blown off. That's interesting. Yeah, well, there, there is a code, pelvic and perineal pain, but again, it's not as specific as we would like for it to be. That's very interesting. Well, you know I love Bull and Branch, but did you know that thread count is a myth? It doesn't matter how many threads that sheets have if they're not made of the best threads. That's right. At Bowl & Branch, they use highest quality on earth for a superior softness. Sheets are made with luxurious threads, 
They've been beloved by three U.S. presidents. You'll immediately feel the difference. They're iconic signature sheets. They look, they're 100%, they're 100% free of toxins, no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. Bowl and branch sheets fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags. Why hasn't anybody else caught on to this? So making your bed is easier than ever. And best of all, Bowl and Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. That's right. What things keep getting better when you use them, like a leather jacket, which I'm wearing right now. Bowl and Branch sheets. I sleep in them every night. I love them, and you will too. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code Dr. Drew at bowlandbranch.com. That is B O L L A N Branch, bowlandbranch.com. Promo code Dr. Drew. Well, Jordan Harbinger, you know we love that guy. He's, first of all, he's a great guy. Secondly, interesting life experience. And he himself is an attorney, speaks multiple languages, and he's been actually uh, abducted more than once. More than once. I, I wonder. I worry about that boy. You can go to jordanharbinger.com, subscribe for the podcast, also Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. And the Jordan Harbinger Show is a podcast you really should be listening to. I know that everybody, somebody's telling you that you have to listen to their podcast. Well, listen, this is different. And Jordan is so interesting, so intelligent. He makes every show something that you will learn from and have ways to apply to your own life. That's right. Each episode is a conversation with different fascinating guests. He tells, for instance, uh, a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. He's always focusing on pulling useful, practical insights out of the guest. And you're not just talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff. The episodes are loaded with wisdom. I enjoy the Jordan Harbinger Show. I enjoy Jordan Harbinger, and I think you will as well. Search the Jordan Harbinger Show. That is H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It is the Jordan Harbinger Show. Crowd health. It's not an insurance. Here's how it works. With insurance, you pay premiums for high deductibles, which means on top of the thousands you pay to keep your plan, you end up paying thousands more before the insurance even kicks in. Well, one in six claims are denied by healthcare.gov plans. No wonder people are looking for alternatives. CrowdHealth gives you a new way to pay for healthcare. No doctor networks, no huge premiums or high deductible, no surprises. They're putting community back in community healthcare. They succeed in keeping their members happy, not by driving up the price. CrowdHealth helps members shop for great care at fair prices. Don't let healthcare costs stand between you and your future. Join CrowdHealth today, and right now you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. That is almost 50% off the normal price and certainly a lot less than the high-deductible healthcare plans out there. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com and use promo code DREW at sign up. That is joincrowdhealth, joincrowdhealth.com, promo code DREW. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It is a totally different way of paying for health care. Terms and conditions apply. ZocDoc, no one knows what they're looking for in a doctor better than you. That's right. The people who created ZocDoc found the major pain points in healthcare, the things that weren't working, and they said enough, and they made booking a great doctor surprisingly pain-free. That's right. Finding a physician that is right for you does not need to be a terrible experience. They will take your insurance, understand your needs, or be available when you can see them. All things that ZocDoc answers. There are some great physicians out there, but really the only ones that matter are, in fact, the ones that you can get to and who take your insurance. With ZocDoc, you can focus on physicians who are in-network, putting you on the path to see the doctors who are right for you. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you physicians who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. All things that really, <laughs> that's top of people's list. Read up on local doctors, get verified patient reviews. Go to ZocDoc.com, choose a time slot, whether you want to see the doctor in person or a video visit, and just like that, you are booked. Find the physician that is right for you. Book an appointment that works for your schedule. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash Drew and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That is ZocDoc.com slash Drew. One more time, ZocDoc.com slash Drew. 
how is it, one of the questions I get sometimes is that, you know, implants, we're talking about penile implants, obviously correct erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. How does it, and I've not been able to answer this question because I'm, I'm not very familiar with this territory, so you're going to have to educate me as well. Sure. It, it, essentially, it's a, <clears throat> it's a flaccid penis that is enlarged. How is, does that still get orgasmic function? In other words, it it feels like as a normal male that erection you know, functioning is a key component leading to orgasm. How, how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So I think part of the reason that there's some orgasmic, and I hope I'm approaching this correctly, I think some of the reason there's some orgasmic dysfunction in these men is because they can't get full enough or hard enough, robust enough to generate enough friction to cause sensitivity and stimulation. Mm. Also, remember, a lot of these men have hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetic issues. And so, you know, those vessels may may have some peripheral nephropathy or neuropathy where we really have, you know, we don't have good blood flow or sensation going to the penis. So I think there's a lot of different things. I think also, I mean, I'm a big proponent of penile implant aside. We can talk about that all day long. I'm doing four this week. That's kind of my Disney you know, inside the operating room, if you will. Mm. But I think, you know, when we talk about these things, uh, a lot of these men just have not had good blood flow into their penis. I always say in my, in my office, you know, uh, they say, oh, there's four treatments for erectile dysfunction, vacuum erection device, which is a suction cup, right? A glorified suction cup, Mm -hmm. Uh, oral medications, several varieties, intracavernosal injections. So injections into the penis or the penile implant. Quickly though, let's talk about the two biologies. So the injections are these alpha agents and uh, prostaglandins, which vasodilators, which Mm -hmm. cause vasodilation, the Mm -hmm. PDE5 inhibitors, so-called are the things that decrease the breakdown of nitric oxide to increase the release of coiling and and vasodilatation. All Mm -hmm. very effective, by the way. Very, very, these are really, I mean, I, I lived in I the days. typically, day, yeah. Yeah, I lived in the days when we didn't have these things. And, uh, yeah. you know, and I, I, I will, someday I should tell the story about when, when uh, the first PD-5s developed, I had uh, a line of 75-plus-year-old men at my office, like, when's this coming out? And the day it of came course. out, there. And then three days later, I had a bunch of pissed off 75-year-old women who were yeah. not prepared for this. And uh, we had to, you know, no one thought about that. We had to prepare the partners as well. No garages yeah. for the Ferraris. That's right. Yes. Well, the garages were there. They just weren't so interested in taking the Ferrari. And, the it, hurt, and, it, open, and yeah. it hurt when it did. So anyway, so, so back to the back to the treatments of erectile dysfunction. Go ahead. Implant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so the implant, you know, it, it's a device that's actually been out since 1973 yeah. uh, with further iterations. There are two main companies uh, in the United States uh, that are FDA approved for this. I, they're kind of like Coke and Pepsi. So we have two great options. A lot of them may be based on anatomy or patient preference. I offer both types in my clinical practice, uh, you know, but it's in my hands. It's an outpatient procedure that can be formed. Uh, performed in in 30 to 45 minutes. They go home the same day, uh, fully healed within about, you know, one month. And then they're able to have, you know, unassisted erectile function whenever they want for as long as they want, uh, which again, in that patient uh, partner climax scenario may be very beneficial. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, one of the happiest, my understanding is I don't have a lot of these patients, but uh, the groups of patients is the, you know, the, I always hear these two groups are the happiest surgically. A, the breast reduction patients, and mm-hmm. B, the penile implant patients. Those are the two happiest, yeah. happiest post-surgical patients, which is I, – I, it sounds odd to people that aren't around that field that the penile implant would be something that people would feel so, so positive about because it feels like sort of a – let me ask this. Do the female partners ever get weird about it? Uh, actually, in my practice, I think the fact that I'm a female urologist that performs penile implants it has been really, really beneficial. So today I had someone that drove from almost nine this morning. I was in clinic. I had someone that drove from almost nine hours away uh, to see me because their partner wanted to talk to another woman about the implant. And I think that it's something that, you know, I, I think the outcomes and the successes are so much better when you involve the partner. These partners are frustrated, male or female, uh, in my practice. They are frustrated. Uh, they don't know how to bring up the scenario. They don't want to disappoint anyone. They don't want to call out anyone for yeah. falling short. Yeah. And it, like I said, it creates a lot of angst and anxiety that really does not usually exist in that relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it has that, you know, penile implants, uh, you know, historically have a 98% patient satisfaction rate and a 96% percent partner satisfaction rate. And mm-hmm. I, what I employ in my practice that I think is so helpful is different age groups, different you know conditions, post-prostatectomy, diabetes, et cetera. I have patient educators that any of my patients within my practice can call and speak about their journey and their process and their implant 
with the patient and the partner. And then that way they get a firsthand experience. The, those satisfaction numbers are insane. I can't think of anything I know medicine that. where you get that kind of outcome. Um, so um, I'm going to switch topics again. Again, I'm sort of sure. uh, sort of uh, taking a survey of urology today, and I hope everyone's interested in this because yeah. I get these questions all the damn time. Um, recently, there was some some somehow patients got their hands on uh, some press on the idea that I'll just summarize it as follows: uh, If you're not having frequent erections you might get some scarring in the penis and some penile shortening as a result. Th- that mm-hmm. all of a sudden be- has become a preoccupation in uh, middle-aged and older males. <laughs> because uh, and, and they usually come to me and say, I, I, you didn't know this, Gary? Uh, so, so, A, you're going to have to first uh, talk about the process of whether, you know, how, how significant it is or is not. Uh, the, the average patient that comes up with this is a middle-aged or late middle-aged male who's saying, I'm not having morning erections the way I used to. Therefore, therefore, I, I look at my penis and it's, and it's shortened. And then there's a final category in here uh, that I want to talk about after we talk about this actual physiology, which is men's preoccupation with their penis. I want to talk about because yeah. that's a really interesting topic. But first talk about this, this uh, scarring and shortening and how, how significant is that? Absolutely. So I think there's two different categories we're going to talk about with this. So number one is kind of the natural curiosity. And, you know, I'm not in many men's locker rooms throughout my life, so I can't really speak to the fact of who's a shower, who's a grower, who demonstrates this and that. But there is, if we go back to very, very excellent lectures by some of my colleagues, I mean, this goes down to hieroglyphics, right? Mm-hmm. Like just, you know, things drawn on rocks yep. back in, in different times. Yep. So I think there was a study that was that was proposed that really discussed uh, penile length. And again, unfortunately, a lot of our data historically is based on heterosexual couples, mm-hmm. right? And we're, we're becoming more encompassing. But but when I refer to things, you know, I want to apologize to people. When I talk about vaginal intercourse, it's because that's most of the historical data. Yeah, so yeah. It's like, it's like when we talk about, uh, you know, attachment, uh, we have to talk about mom because that's yeah. all of the data. And Correct. so we have to go just – we're using that as a model. So we're starting yeah, I'm that, sensitive you know. to that in my yeah. practice. So, yeah. so if we want – there is no real average penile length. I think if you want to talk about one study that was performed, we can talk about a measurement of 12 centimeters, which is possibly, you know, uh, you know uh, 5.4 inches. You know, my biggest statement if we want to talk about heterosexual couples is, well, when's the last time you measured your wife's vagina? Okay, <laughs> because the average – that's what I always say. Like, oh, I used to be this many. I said, well, you, sir, I also used to be a high school cheerleader. Yeah. And, you know, I actually can still fit in my uniform. I tried it last year. But at any rate, um, that was not usual case until last year. So I think what I would say is, is, you know, vaginal length is usually four to four and a half centimeters. And that is shorter with radiation, hysterectomy, et cetera. So this long penis, I'm not, unless they want to do nude modeling or something, I think that we really have to get honest about what you want to do with it. Not to mention the obesity epidemic mm-hmm. in this United States. And what I would like to say is if you don't use it, you will lose it. you got to take your penis to the gym. So if you have any erectile dysfunction, those muscles will atrophy, just like if I put your arm in a cast for six weeks, right? When we take it off, it's going to be puny and scrawny and pale. Same thing with the penis. So when men come to me, you know, with six, 10 years of erectile dysfunction and they say, my penis is shorter. Well, yes, sir, it is. And if we don't do anything about that, whether it's vacuum erection device for exercise, big proponent of that for length and girth restoration, maintenance, or looking at placing a penile implant based on their level of erectile dysfunction, you're going to lose penile length every year that you're not using it. Mm. And then you want to add abdominal fat pad obesity to that. You know that that is just further increasing the distance between the world and your penis. Right, Adam. Uh, so Adam always said, if you if you let the grass grow up around the mailbox, you're not going to see that much of the mailbox right. outside of the yeah, ground, grass. Yeah, grass doesn't grow on a playground. Yeah, you got it. Uh, and so it it does happen. How how significant does it happen normally as part of aging? Uh, and therefore, men should pay attention and really use. You know, what's the sort of recommendation there? I mean, how, how much? Absolutely, you, yeah. So you know. I think vacuum erection device safely under supervision of a qualified urologist. You know, specializing in erectile dysfunction is is never a bad idea. Mm. Understand that the, you know the the spotted leopard uh, variety that you might buy at a his and hers store or his and his and hers and hers and y'all's all y'alls yeah. down the South, yeah. you know, compared to a medical grade device may be very different. And yeah. there are very affordable medical grade devices to the tune of a hundred dollars that, that I can, can give to patients in my practice. So I think that's important, but I think what we have to understand is I don't want to talk about erectile dysfunction as a normal form of aging. I don't think that's appropriate nor acceptable. I think what we have to discuss is you have chronic conditions that continue to progress 
that basically result in end-stage organ disease, which is your penis, right? So if you have kidney dysfunction, right, we have transplant or we have dialysis. If you have erectile dysfunction, that's end-stage penile organ disease. And so I think when we talk about aging, it's you've had hypertension for 20 years, you've had diabetes for 20 years, although levels may be controlled, it's still assaulting that inner lining or the endothelium of those blood vessels, which are some of the smallest blood vessels in the body. Mm. I, I heard data back in my training that uh, the arteries of the penis are something like five or seven times more sensitive to, to um, endothelial disease than the coronary arteries. Yes. And they're also four to six times smaller, right? Yeah. So when you talk about somebody having chest pain, or maybe you, maybe listeners out here, maybe you got a stent, you weren't having chest pain, but you had an aggressive uh, physician cardiologist <laughs> who found some blockage that yeah. put some stents in preemptively understand that it takes 50% occlusion, 50% blockage mm-hmm. of an artery to be symptomatic. Okay. To show, so if you're, if you had chest pain and that LAD artery, uh, the biggest artery in the heart is already 50% occluded. What do you think is happening to that four to six times smaller blood vessel in your penis? In, you know, most of the guys that complain about this shortening thing, um, mm. are, are basing it on not that they're having less activity or they're not using their penis or, nor that they're having erectile dysfunction, what they will per se, at least performative erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. What, what they will say is I'm worried because I don't have morning morning erections. Right. Therefore, it must and, be it must be I'm having less or more effect on the on the potential for scarring. Exactly. But you understand, too, with all the SSRIs and some of our sleep aids, I mean, we, we are a multi-med society. Mm-hmm. And I think that you can't distract from how that affects erectile dysfunction. Also, a lot of couples don't go to bed at the same time. Some people are sleeping in separate rooms. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Now, of course, part of the AUA guidelines, the American Neurologic Association, which governs 12,000 urologists in the United States, uh, you know, do do involve some low morning testosterone estrogen assessments um, that I think are appropriate in a lot of this patient population based on their concerns. I, let me zero my question a little more focused, which is should they yeah. be concerned? In other words, um, is is it necessarily the case that mm-hmm. the uh, reduction in morning erection is going to lead to this problem of scarring? Because that's what they always come and ask me. Of course. Not necessarily. And I think the scarring also we have to attribute to the, you know, the kind of the emergence of, of the discussion of Peroni's disease, yeah. which is present in 13%. So scarring meaning non-function versus scarring. Shortening, short, shortening, yeah. shortening. Yeah. yeah. Not, not even non-functioning. Yeah, not. Just they, they'll, they, again, we're going to, we're, we're drifting towards men and their preoccupations. Yeah. So, so they're just preoccupied that it's going to lead to shortening. No, I don't think if you're not waking up with morning erections, I do not guarantee that your penis is going to be shorter. If you can use it in other scenarios, you know, as you desire easily, I I would not have any concerns about that. Okay, that that was really because that you'd be surprised how often I get that stupid question. Not stupid, preoccupation. So, so to the the um, gosh, you you pumped some stuff in there about estrogen, testosterone levels and stuff, but I'm going to skip over that and let's go over to the preoccupation. Sure. I, I've just observed that that the male nervous system is highly connected to their genitalia in ways that I'm not sure the female nervous system is. And let me give you two two Agreed. two sort of clinical observations. One is when a male comes out of a coma, particularly if they're in a waking coma after being in a deeper deeper coma, first thing they start doing is messing with their penis. Including, no, I, including masturbating. The first thing they do is grab down below. Yeah. I've never seen a woman grab her chest when it, she wakes it, up from or, a kidney or her stone vagina surgery. or something. Right. It's no. it's some there's some circuitry there that is deeply yeah. ingrained. Okay. And by the same token, I have a lot of patients with obsessive compulsive disorders, and urologists send things to me where they get frustrated. <laughs> You're, there's the the here's the basic story, and I've seen a bunch of these, which is. The patient has seen three urologists and two dermatologists, and their complaint is there's something wrong with their testicles, their penis, their their testicles are too shiny. They're inflamed. They're mm-hmm. shiny. And I put them on uh, a modest dose of an SSRI, and the whole mm-hmm. thing goes away. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So again, obsessive compulsive disorder, and this circuitry starts flowing, very preoccupying. But but that it 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 flows into a cognitive preoccupation too, mm-hmm. worrying about, thinking about, getting involved in you know uh, I was just thinking about kind of weird behaviors like jelking and things that people do because yeah. they're preoccupied. So what is your which can pre- hurt the penis? You know that. It, it, you know? It, it, we'll talk about that and then talk about this preoccupation and how you perceive it as a urologist. 
Yeah, I think so. You know, I again, I live in a in a in a you know right out on the outskirts of a of a large major U.S. city, so I see all types of demographics, uh, socioeconomic and cultural backgrounds, and I think there is a lot of cultural stigma when it comes to sex whether it's, you know, lots of different types of religious or, or cultural communities. And I think masturbation, you know, is a taboo topic for a lot of people. And I think what people need to realize is there is no normal. Mm-hmm. There isn't, no, whether you masturbate once a month or whether you masturbate three times a day, you know, uh, there is no specific normal. Now, what you said, when it becomes an obsession, and then again, I think when you get obsessed and anxiety and you have that, that sympathetic nervous system that is in such a high drive, you know, especially when you talk about porn addiction, which mm. I'm sure you've seen, mm-hmm. it makes a scenario exist in your daily life that is not always able to be replicated. Mm. Uh, and when you talk about some of the sensitivity, you know, in some of my older patients, because I think of neuropathy, et cetera, I have them use vibratory aids because there is a sense sen- sensitivity of frequency duration uh, that cannot be sustained by a human. Right. And that sounds sad to say, but it actually is true because some people need that higher level of sensitivity. So some of the behaviors of I'm masturbating in my room, maybe we have multiple generations of a household that live together, mom or grandma or cousin or sister, whoever walks in, I have to push down my erection that can cause a lot of scar tissue in some of these men. And and, and sometimes people masturbate what we call, you know, prone, which is they're kind of rubbing their penis onto the bed that Mm. can cause a lot of trauma as well. Interesting. And is that the Peyronie's type trauma? Is that, that what you see? Yeah, I would say it's more on the Peyronie's, you know, segment. So Peyronie's disease, as we know, is present in 13% of, Amer- of American men, our men that living in this country. And basically, it's a it's a combination of a wound healing defect of laying down too much collagen, which is part of our normal wound healing cascade, mm-hmm. in combination with microscopic, microscopic or overt trauma that causes some scar tissue on the penis that limits the excursion of those expansile erectile chambers. And any new treatments for Peyronie's? So, so I was lucky enough, right when I, I finished fellowship and came into clinical practice, that in uh, December uh, 6, 2013, the FDA approved a drug uh, called Clostridium collagenase histolyticum. And basically, it is a collagen uh, bond breaker that we inject into the penis uh, that breaks up collagen bonds for penile curvature. I've done over 4,000 of those injections. Uh, I have had some good clinical success. It's not appropriate in every person, um, but I think for our only FDA-approved treatment, other than surgery, uh, it's certainly something that has been a legacy product in men's sexual health. Great. So it's working. I think it's working. You know, I think it's technician dependent. I think it's also, you know, you have to see how much collagen versus calcium is in the plaque. And again, that's why it's important to find somebody that does a lot of that. And so sometimes it, it requires a surgery, though. Sometimes it does. Sometimes either excising the scar tissue and putting a graft or putting an implant. Yeah, that's what that's what I've heard. Um, Mm -hmm. Back to the issue of sensitivity, you mentioned using vibrators uh, to help Mm -hmm. with that. What about I get a frequent question from women? They've induced insensitivity from excessive vibrator use. Do do you see that, and what do you recommend? Absolutely. I see that. So I I would suggest, you know, we know on average, if we talk about women, 70% of orgasms are clitoral, uh, about 10 to 15% are are vaginal. And then you have some, you know, rare uterine orgasms, which are kind of really kind of like the earthquakes, if you will. Uh, And so I think that you can have some excessive sensitivity. I also think, as you alluded to at the beginning of our discussion, hormonal factors play in women on birth control, all the hormones and, and, and antibiotics, et cetera, and some of our food supply, um, play into some of those distractors. So I see women in their twenties that need some local hormone therapy. Mm. So certainly I think that, I think you, it's okay. Self-pleasure is always okay in my book, but again, I think you really have to talk about experiences. I don't think you can expect your vibrator to be like your boyfriend. But but if you, if you've done, and by the way, I I see the, uh, the vaginal estrogen deficiency all the time from the high high dose progesterone birth control pills, Mm -hmm. which, and and they present with, they'll present with, I'm allergic to my boyfriend's semen. That's the presenting complaint, which in fact they are not, they're just having irritation and it hurts. It's a tissue issue. Yeah, Mm -hmm. from the lack of estrogen. But, but no, the question I get is I've desensitized myself 
with the mm-hmm. vibrator. Now what do I do? Am I forever dependent on the vibrator? I usually tell, tell them to take a few months off and it usually restores. Okay, right. Yeah. It's just yeah. like a it's just like porn, if you yeah. will, right? Yeah. It's just it's just porn touching you. Yeah, yeah. Um I think I think you have to take a break. I have to, I think you have to reset the sensory organs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like a guy that says, "Oh, I base jump all the time and uh and you know, uh, riding in an airplane, I'm a commercial airplane, I'm not really excited about." Um so I I think it's the same thing. So I don't I don't want to I don't want to you know, I don't want to discourage anyone from yeah. discovering themselves or yeah, self-pleasure. Yeah. But I do believe you have to exercise relatable experiences if you want to be with a partner. You, you mentioned cultural, culturally sensitive uh, sort of uh, practice, essentially. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if they're cultural words. Uh, I was sort of coached up one time that uh, there was a subset of this culture in the one city I was in that they didn't use the word erection. They called it just the power. Uh, oh. And, and, uh, and are, are there words that we as physicians should be aware of uh, that – we need to understand or to be more culturally sensitive or is it, or is it very regional and it's hard to keep track of? We just have to pay attention. I completely agree with you. I think it's regional and we have to pay attention. And, you know, I am no religious expert. I'm a, I'm a penis expert. Um, but I think that's a fantastic point. And actually I may challenge my colleagues and some of my sub societies to kind of document some of this so that we can be all inclusive in terms of language, because I think, you know, now we're getting to, are you a penis owner? Are you a vulva owner rather than just saying like male and female, Hmm. because obviously with some of our transgender patients, they may identify as one way, but have different anatomy. Um, and so I agree. No, I had not heard of the power, but um, I, I like the power. Yeah, it's and good, I, right? So uh, I liked it too. Yeah. That's why I stayed with you. It was years I ago. I and I was power. like, oh, yeah. yeah, I get that. How was your power? It's like, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> it's very and interesting. And some of that, you know, some of the urban dictionary slang is unfortunate because I think as clinicians, as you know, we don't communicate that way out yeah. of respect and yeah, also yeah. out of just making sure we have a cohesive approach to that. So yeah. um, certainly there's there are some sexy terms we could all be more aware of. Let, let's. You mentioned I, I mentioned jelking is something guys do, and you said you yeah. could injure yourself. Talk a little, you, and you talked about some of the masturbatory injuries. Talk a little bit more about that, so men aren't so enthusiastic about following online sort of weird techniques. Yeah, so I, I think everybody's pleasure points different, right? And and they may be hit different times in different positions. So I think you know anything where if if we're talking about a penis owner, mm. anything where they're putting an extreme amount of pressure on the penis, I don't think you know I come from the land of NASCAR. I practice the land of NASCAR. We got a couple very high intensity inner tube inflation going on in the penis, right? Mm-hmm. And I think people don't realize the pressure that the penis is under. It's a very thin lining called the tunica albuginea that really kind of is your outer you know, cycle of your tire and anything where you really bend your penis exquisitely or bend it down, you know, can predispose you to risk of penile fracture, quote, breaking your penis or Mm -hmm. penile injury, whether it's scar tissue, et cetera. And that includes, if we're not just talking about masturbatory behaviors, you know, uh, cock rings, you know, occlusive bands, uh, different things you might place on your penis. I, you know, I saw a gentleman at one time with a glass base on his penis, where unfortunately when he had his erection, there just wasn't any more room to expand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Good I think times. you know, they're very careful with devices. And that also includes, if we talk about other intercourse, you know, partner superior, reverse cowgirl, these things. I'm not saying don't have exciting rodeo swing from the chandelier intercourse. I'm just saying be aware of how things move and and, yeah. and jive because you can have injury. Don't miss just your like, you know, it, hey, it's exercise. It, yeah. It's an athletic. Don't miss your target. And, well, uh, <laughs> and sometimes that's unethical. And by the way, I will say when we talk about Peroni's disease, one thing I do want to say to patients. Yeah. Um, I think when you talk about Peroni's disease being a disease, not exclusively, but heavily proportional in the 50 to 60 plus age range of men. I personally believe at least part of that factor is atrophic female partners who have inelastic introitus or entrances to their vagina. And basically you have a gentleman who might have a little bit of erectile dysfunction kind of trying to push this into the, you know, the vaginal tissue and they're meeting resistance from, from both partners. And I think it's kind of a jamming of the penis. You know, yeah. I had one patient one time examine this. This is the one visual I've walked away from some of my patients with. He said, Try, imagine trying to cram an oyster in a parking meter. And I've never forgotten that. And if you just think about, you know, I just don't want people to injure themselves because they're not having appropriate therapy. Oyster in a parking meter. I shall not, right? say, I shall not soon forget that. But last, lastly, uh, have we abandoned the penile lengthening and thickening procedures? I, I scrubbed in on one of those once and I was like, oh, this, yeah. this, this isn't good. What, what's going on with all that? 
Absolutely. So they certainly do exist. Uh, I think that if we talk about who performs them, I think there are urologists and there are plastic surgeons uh, who can perform them or who are performing them. I will tell you, according to the AUA, again, one of my governing bodies, bodies the American Neurologic Association, it is actually discouraged. So Good. the suspensory ligament is the only thing that really holds the penis to the body. If you cut that, which is sometimes highly advertised, you wear penile weights, you stretch it out, there will be some scar tissue there, and then you have some instability of the penis. So there are certain things we can do at the time of penile implant and other things, but in terms of specific procedures, they're really not responsibly advocated. Dr. Ashley Tapscott, we appreciate you spending time with us. Uh, the website is shicarolina.com. Is there any place else you'd like to send people, any social media or anything? Absolutely. So I have a YouTube channel, Dr. Ashley taps out where I talk all about penile implants. I saw some female pelvic health uh, videos on there as well. And then I'm located right north of Charlotte, North Carolina with Carolina Urology Partners in Huntersville. And I sincerely appreciate this full circle moment. This has been great. And uh, we appreciate you spending time with us. I know that we'll talk to you soon and we will see everybody Absolutely. next. We'll see everybody next time. Thank you. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Stream the biggest movies and TV shows for free on Pluto TV. Watch movies like Titanic and G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, plus TV shows like CSI and Star Trek The Next Generation. Starting this month, check out the 24-7 Stargate channel exclusively on Pluto TV, plus hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows absolutely free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start watching today.